Uh, I'm going to be preaching our fall series. It's going to be based on Joshua chapter 1. So if you could uh, be turning there, I'm going to read the first nine verses to us. And uh, it reads this, I came about after the death of Moses, that the servant of the Lord, the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' servant, saying, Moses, my servant is dead. Now therefore arise, cross this Jordan, you and all this people to the land which I'm giving to them, to the sons of Israel. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads, I have given it to you, just as, just as I spoke to Moses. That's quite a promise. From the wilderness in this Lebanon, even as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, as far as the great sea, towards the setting of the sun, will be your territory. No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you, and I will not fail you or forsake you. Goes on to say, be strong and courageous. God is now speaking to Joshua. For you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, so that you may have success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. I'm going to be bringing out this whole aspect of courage and fear today. And fear is something that besets us. Fear is something that holds us back and paralyzes us. And we're going to see how powerful God speaks to that very thing. We know that fear can be part of our individual lives. It can also be part of a corporate body. But God comes to break that fear. So let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your timeless word. We thank you that it's a sword, God, that comes and challenges us, divides between soul and spirit. Lord, we ask for a quickening. We ask that you be the preacher and teacher in our midst. We thank you for your precious word. We consecrate this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So our theme is church on the move. We're excited about this as we preach through this book. Just as Israel was a nation that was on the move, ready to move into its promised land, so we're sensing that momentum from the Holy Spirit. We're sensing that momentum in the air, new vistas and opportunities that are ahead of us. I think that's the, the faith walk that is so exciting, an adventure that God takes us on. He tells us to take one step, but we don't know what's around the corner. Take another step, we don't know what's ahead, but we know that God is a good God and we always have exciting things in front of us. That's why I don't understand people will say, you know what, God is boring, or Christianity is boring. Hello, that's not the God that I serve. So there's something always fresh, and we're sensing that movement from God. So as you can see this morning, we've had a lot of fun, put a lot of work uh, into our launch, not only because we like to freshen things up each and every year, but because we feel that, that stirring. And we couldn't be more grateful that we have the opportunity to expand our services, more people are coming. The last 18 months, we've seen this wonderful surge. And of course, that's what every pastor and every church wants is for just that growth to be seen in our midst. Our city reach is increasing. But in the midst of all that, the most important thing is that we are calibrated spiritually. And what does it mean to be a church on the move? Every organization must know why it exists and what its purpose is. And so when we talk about the book of Joshua and coming into our destiny, and what is it that we're aiming at? What is our objective? 
So when you begin to think and meditate on the book, it forces you to get this very clear in your mind. And I do encourage you to study the, the book of Joshua. Go ahead, read ahead, take notes. We've timed it with our literacy course so that you can be studying along with us. But as we study this book, it forces us to get clear, okay, who we, what are we about? And so there are two reasons why we exist here at Five Stones Church. The first is to represent God's kingdom, right? Jesus gave it to us very clearly in Matthew chapter 5 that we're to be salt and we're to be light. That is a sermon in and of itself. But the big picture, the idea is that our job is to reflect the flavor of the kingdom and the revelation of the kingdom. Too many people come to church and they, they get a sour taste in their mouth. Why would I want that? That's so bitter. That gives me a bad taste. I don't want to come back to it. But God says the kingdom is full of flavor and it's full of revelation, right? If you come to a place, you want to come to a place where there's understanding, where your eyes are open. Why do we want to go to a place where if our eyes are continually darkened? But the Bible says you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. That's part of what we, why we exist is to be that salt and light and to represent his kingdom. We're also here to make disciples. This is the core of the Great Commission. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. God has given us this little corner of the earth to make disciples. There are churches all around the globe worshiping God 24-7. God has assigned them each little spot in all the nations. And God has placed us right here in New Westminster in one of the best cities in the world that we can impact it for Jesus so that we can make disciples. This is where God has us set up our shop. And this is our promised land. This is our land of milk and honey. If we do these things well, we're going to experience the meat and the sweetness of God. Now to accomplish these things, just like God said to Joshua, we need to possess two qualities. The first is that we need to have courage. And the second is we need to have loyalty. This week I'm going to focus on courage and next week I'm going to be talking about loyalty. But as we read, three times God said to Joshua, be strong and courageous. Verse 6, verse 7, verse 9. He didn't say it once or twice, but three times. And in saying it three times, it was like God was driving a nail into a piece of wood. He wanted Joshua to get this firmly planted in his heart. You know, as parents, we say things to our kids, not once or twice, maybe a dozen times, maybe 20 times. Why do we need to say it? Because they don't actually hear it. They don't actually get it. So that repetition is so important. So God was saying this to Joshua. Despite all your military training, all the previous fighting experience that you've had, what you're going to need to take on the giants in the land is courage. Now Joshua was standing on the edge of the promised land, sitting there across the Jordan River. We're going to see some amazing miracles happen in the book of Joshua. We're talking about the parting of the Jordan. We're talking about walls falling down. We just preached on Nehemiah, building up walls. Now we're going to see the walls coming down. Did you know that God actually caused the sun to stand still? This is all in the book of Joshua. So there's some amazing things that we're going to read about. But here Joshua is ready to cross, and I think he's reflecting on this historic moment. 400 years of history has come to this. He was not only connected to Moses, one of the greatest, if not the greatest hero in the Old Testament. Can you imagine being mentored by Moses himself? 
Moses was his mentor. He was connected to him personally, but he was also connected to Abraham, the founding father of the Jewish people. 400 years earlier, the scripture tells us this. When Israel was but one small family, God prophesied to Abraham. He said, look towards the heavens and count the stars if you're able to count them. It's quite a a visual. Just look up into the sky and all that sparkles, every star. That's how many of your lineage is going to be. God said to Abraham, so shall your descendants be. And God said to him, I'm the Lord who brought you out of Earl, Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land, this physical piece of property, which is still on the earth today. Israel in the Middle East is the exact same land that God spoke to right here in Genesis 15. It's not just a concept. It's not a historical relic. It's still there. The land is still there. God says, I'm going to give this peace to you. So Abraham goes to sleep. The sun was going down. A deep sleep fell upon him. And terror and great darkness fell upon him. I'd love to just preach on this phrase, terror and great darkness fell upon him. There is this, this dread that comes from the presence of God. When the holiness of God starts touching you, you're like Isaiah. You see him high and lifted up in the temple. You go, woe is me. It's the mercy of God that God just doesn't unveil his holiness and his full glory because we would be crushed under the weight of it. But in this situation, Abraham was sleeping and that, that dread weight came upon him because the prophetic word was going to be so clear and so strong. God said to Abram, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. Okay, so the prophecy kind of takes a left turn. You're going to have so many people that will be from your lineage, that will be part of your tribe. You can't even count them, but they're not going to live in this land. They're going to be multiplied in another place. And that's exactly what happened. That prophecy came to pass just as the Lord told Abram. The Israelites didn't multiply in the promised land. They multiplied in Egypt. Now, Jacob, who was the grandson of Abraham, so quick trivia question, who was the son of Abraham? Isaac, Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob. So Jacob's the grandson. That's referred to as the patriarchs. Jacob, Abraham's grandson, had to move the entire tribe to Egypt because of a famine. At that time now, the tribe was about 70 people. And then for 400 years, they lived in Egypt, and they grew to be over a million people. A million people from 70. Now, some commentators actually say that they grew to be 2 to 4 million. This is incredible flourishing, incredible multiplication from God. No wonder Pharaoh got scared. Look at this people that's growing up under my eyes. So he enslaves them. But the big issue is that the people are not in their land. They're in Egypt. And so God had to send Moses to deliver them because of their enslavement under Pharaoh. And for 40 years, Moses leads this amazing multitude to the desert without water, food, shelter, hospitals, 7-Eleven, sushi. I mean, Vancouver, greater Vancouver area is 2 million people. Can you imagine moving this whole city across the country with no water, no livestock. I'm sorry, they had livestock. No water, no food, no shelter, no hospitals. It was a complete miracle to move that many people. But now it was upon Joshua to lead them in. Moses had laid his hands on Joshua, installed him as the new leader of the nation. Joshua 
must have been filled with gratitude and humbled by this moment. But as he thought about the task ahead, there was probably some tinges of regret and sadness because the Israelites were actually supposed to go into the promised land 40 years earlier. As a young man, Joshua was part of the the 12-man team that was sent to spy out the land. Remember, Moses delivered the people, part of the Red Sea. They're supernaturally supplied, and they come to Mount Sinai. God comes and visits this mountain and shakes it. There's smoke and fire. And Moses goes up, and he receives the Ten Commandments. That becomes their constitution. That becomes the basis of their identity, who they are as a special, holy people that will represent God's redemptive purpose in history. So they're all set. They've got everything. They just need their land to live in. So Moses readies the people for the trek to the promised land. And so in preparation, he sends out the scouting team, one leader for each of the 12 tribes. Each of the 12 tribes represented the 12 sons. And so in Numbers chapter 13, again, follow with me in your Bibles. I don't have the entire verse listed out just to get you the practice of looking at your Bible. So Moses said to the 12 spies, go up into the Negev, then go up into the hill country, see what the Lord is like, and whether the people who live in it are strong or weak, whether they're few or many. How is the land in which they live? Is it good or bad? How are the cities in which they live? Are they open camps or are they fortified? And how is the land? Is it fat or is it lean? Are there trees in it or is it just empty? Make an effort also to get some of the fruit of the land. So for 40 days, the spies are are out there following Moses' instructions, checking out different places, going to the terrains, looking for fruit, sizing up the people. And so the nation is waiting on these 12 spies to come back with anticipation. What are they going to say? We've been waiting for 400 years to go into this place. This is going to be our homeland. But when the scouts came back, it turns out they gave a bad report. You go on in Numbers chapter 13, And we read what they said. When they returned from spying out the land at the end of the 40 days, this is chapter 13, 25 to 33, the spies proceeded to come to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the sons of Israel in the wilderness. They brought back word to them and all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. So the spies had cut down branches of just heavy grapes, like just plump, So, you know, they're coming back and everyone sees like, whoa, this is so neat. It's going to be awesome. We're going to be in our hammocks enjoying grapes. And he said, we went into the land where you sent us and it certainly does flow with milk and honey. And this is the fruit. Nevertheless, uh uh-oh, the people who live in the land are strong and the cities are fortified and very large. Moses Aaron, you wouldn't believe it. We saw, the, we saw the Amalekites. We saw the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites. And they're living in the high spaces. They're living in the low places. They're living by the seaside. They're living in the city. It's scary. And that spirit of fear goes into the congregation. Here's the thing about fear. It's like a virus. If my daughter sees a spider, she screams. That scream instantly transfers to all the other girls in the house. They could be somewhere in the house, and they're like, what's going on? Of course, that's a very simple example. But fear spreads like a virus. And later on, we're going to find out how courage also spreads like a virus. (coughs) 
One person with courage is a majority. So the spirit of fear goes out and Caleb says, quiet, you guys. We should by all means go up and possess it. We will surely overcome. But the men who have gone up with him, we're not able to go against the people because they're too strong for us. So the spies gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report. The land through which we have gone, it's a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people whom we see in it are men of great size. There also we saw the Nephilim, the giants, and we became like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so we were in their sight. So they're painting a really, really bad picture. And that bad picture takes hold. And this is the people's response. Chapter 14, 1 through 10. Continue to follow along with me. All the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept all night. What does it look like for a million people to cry all night? I know that people from the Mideast can be kind of dramatic, but all night? All the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron and the whole congregation. Would that we died in the land of Egypt or that we had died in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones are going to become plunder. Wouldn't it have been better if we just go back to Egypt? Let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. This is part of the temptation and challenge when we start marching into our destiny. I want to go back to Egypt. I want to go back to what's comfortable. I don't want to venture out the leeks and the onions. I want those things. I want my hamburger. I want my brownies. I don't get any of that out in the desert. All we get is manna day after day after day after day. How many recipes can we come up with to make manna? It just gets boring for 40 years. Now you think about us as Vancouverites. We are foodies. Can you imagine being out in the desert for 40 years and all you have is manna? So they are complaining and they're saying, we want to go back. Moses and Aaron, it says, verse 5, fell on their face in the presence of all the assembly and the congregation and the sons of Israel. We're talking about a national crisis right now. Moses and Aaron are like, if we don't stem this tide, we're going over the edge. They're literally on their face. And then we read here in verse 6, Joshua appears. He's one of the 12 spies that were sent out. Only Caleb and Joshua had the voice of the Lord. And Joshua and Caleb, they also tore their clothes, just ripped their shirts apart. And they spoke to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, saying, the land which we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. The Lord is pleased with us. He'll bring us into this land and give it to us, a land flowing with milk and honey. But don't rebel against the Lord. Do not fear the people of the land, for they will be our prey. Their protection has been removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. But the, all the congregations said to stone them with stones. We're talking about a massive clash of agenda. Moses, Aaron, Caleb, and Joshua against a million, two million people saying, of course we need to go in, but the people won't have it. Now, we don't have time to go on and develop all that transpired except to say that God's fury was stirred. Righteous anger was stirred. I delivered you from Pharaoh with 10 plagues. I brought you through the Red Sea. Is your memory that short? 
Do you think my arm is that short? Do you think I cannot do this? I prophesied this to the father of your nation, <coughs> and I'm going to make it happen. But no, the people forget. So he says, you're going to circle in the desert for 40 years. Instead of going in right now, you're going to circle the desert. One year punishment for every day that the scouts were in the land. And young Joshua is right there. He witnessed the whole debacle. He and Caleb were ready to go in. They exhorted the people to have faith, but to no avail. Why? Because the people had a grasshopper complex. They're too big. They're too strong. We're teeny weeny. We'll get crushed under their feet. They'll step on us and we'll go crunch. So here Joshua is in this bittersweet moment of reflection. He's now approximately 60 years old. He could have been in the land when he was 20, enjoying the spoils of the land. But God works in mysterious ways. It's not Moses that will take the people in. Now it falls to Joshua. Nevertheless, 40 years later, the very thing that caused the original spies to recoil in fear are still present. The inhabitants of the land are still there, as strong and as big as ever. Even though Israel had 600,000 men, 20 and over, that's how they drafted people into the military. If you're 20 and older, you can serve. There were 600,000 of those. But God said, the nations that you're going to overcome, it's not one or two or three or five. There's seven of them that are stronger and greater. The Hittites and Girgashites and Amorites and Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, and the Termites. Just the visual of seeing all these chariots and horses and men on foot. Like every time they go out, you know, the way they did battle in those days, armies just line up straight up. And so here Israel is going to be on the battlefield looking at a multitude of enemies that are even more than them, with more artillery, with more supply. And of course it's going to be scary and intimidating. They're truly fierce enemies in the land. And in the face of what our natural eye sees, we're tempted to back down and shrink back. And this is where God's word to Joshua came. In that moment, you have to have internal fortitude. You cannot let the spirit of fear so disturb your inner peace that you back off. This is where the enemy comes to attack us, is in our emotions. He uses external circumstances to tamper with what's going on on the inside. And when we lose that resolve on the inside, we back off. We do not enter in what God has for us. And so God says to Joshua, you need to have a backbone made of a titanium. You've got to be courageous. All that military training, all that strategy that you have, it will melt away if you don't have courage. Don't let your inner emotions betray you. Face them straight on and then be strong. Courage is not the absence of fear or doubt or confusion. It's the ability to act in spite of them when it's necessary for the greater good. Isn't this how God gets the glory? We all can relate to fear, but why is courage such a vaunted and valued trait? Because it's in short supply. There are not many people that are actually courageous, but there are many that are filled with fear. And that's where God comes in. He moves us to that place where we can't do in our natural selves without the help of the Holy Spirit, without the help of God. 
I quoted John Wayne in the first service, that great cowboy. He said, courage is being scared to death, but saddling up anyways. And this is where courage speaks to you and me right now as Five Stones Church. In the hour that we're in, we're all born at the right time, the right place, the right season. Don't say, I wish I were back then, or don't say, I wish I were... No, you are born exactly at the right time. We're here by God's design and God's intentionality. And as a church that's on the move, we have one agenda, and that's to be pro-Jesus. We are not anti-this or anti-that. There's so much about the church where we see, oh, the church is against this and the church is against that. We're not called to have a negative spirit, an anti-spirit. We have a positive spirit with positive energy, positive disposition, and a positive agenda. We are pro-Jesus. Amen? Amen. When you walked into the the hallway this morning and you saw the the artwork on the side, maybe you go, what's going on here? It looks like maybe it's like subway lines or maybe it looks like, you know, lines to go to your kindergarten room. (laughs) It's open for artistic interpretation. But when I was praying this week, I felt like the Lord said, those lines are conductors of electricity. You and I are the conductors of God's electricity. And the church is to be crackling with God's presence. That's our assignment. As long as we stay pro-Jesus, we'll be on task with God. (coughs) We'll be representing the kingdom. And we will sit in our promised land surrounded by gallon jugs of milk and vats of honey. But here's the reality for us, just like it was for Joshua There are giants in the land, and they don't like those who have a pro-Jesus agenda. They don't like Christians. They don't like our worldview. They don't like our value systems. They can be hostile. Now, the storm clouds are already brewing on the horizon in our country, in our provinces, and in our cities. One of our key leaders came to me and said, Pastor Rich, the Lord's been speaking to me. Give me a picture of clouds that are forming on the horizon And when I inquired of the Lord what those clouds meant, God said that there were clouds of deception coming on the earth. And we know that that's coming to pass. Even pastors that are abandoning the faith, those that have preached the gospel, now they're unhinging themselves from the truth, unhinging themselves from the faith. And this is the attack of the enemy because you strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. That's why you need to pray for us over and over and over again. Last night, I had a really bad attack while I was sleeping. I got up this morning. I told Mimi, she goes, boy, that's pretty scary. Why did you tell that to me? I said, because you're my wife. (laughs) But there's an attack that's going on. It's hitting pastors, and they're abandoning the faith. And if pastors are leaving the faith, what do you think will happen to the sheep? And not only, uh, not only are they abandoning the faith, they're teaching heresy. They're uncoupling themselves from orthodoxy, from the word of God. They've become more enlightened. All oh, the culture is teaching them something. So let's permutate the scripture to fit culture. Goodness gracious. There's a spirit of deception out there that is powerful and deluding. There is a deluding spirit. 1 Timothy 4 says, The spirit clearly says that in latter times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Wow, seriously? Demons? You know, demons don't manifest with little horns on their heads and capes on their back. 
They can come through very professional-looking people with three-piece suits on bright stages and big platforms. 2 Timothy 4.3 says, A time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them for sale. Around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. Oh my goodness, you know what? I could become a millionaire and go out there on the preaching circuit and preach what people want to hear. And I could become wealthy and famous. And there's a lot of them because the scripture says a great number. Not just a few, a great number. Oh, let's turn it into an industry. Let's turn it into a money-making industry where we can just enrich ourselves and line our pockets. Now let's our, let our eyes be open to what's actually going on. Let's not be the frog in the kettle where we're falling asleep as danger is all around us. 2 Thess Thessalonians chapter 2 speaks of a deluding spirit that will cause people to believe what is false. I also heard from a key leader this week in our neighboring province, there was a global conference put on by a spirit-filled denomination 4,000 people were invited from around the world. 800 people were denied their visas by Canada because it was a Christian conference. On top of that, the unions that were hired to do set up and take down said, we're not going to tear it on after your event because you don't represent our values. This is happening. They don't like that we love Jesus. They don't like that we live for Jesus. There's real hostility, and that can cause us to fear. Someone challenged you laughs at you, scorns or mocks you because you're a Christian, that's not fun. But in the face of it, we hear God's word to Joshua, be strong and courageous. Be strong and very courageous. Don't shrink back, saints. Courage is our calling card. It's part and parcel of what it means to be a church on the move. We're to possess this emotional constitution that is vibrant, resilient, overcoming, and strong. Remember when Jesus was standing before Pontius Pilate and the Roman leaders? As quiet as a lamb. Zero fear. Zero fear. He was in total command of the situation because he was the ultimate Joshua. Joshua in the Hebrew is actually the word Yeshua. He would not allow anything to disturb his confidence. That's what we need in this hour. The world thinks that we hate them, but we don't. We're a John 3.16 people. God so loved the world. We love the world. Now, when I say God so loved the world, I'm not saying that God loves worldliness. God loves humanity. God has another world. It's called heaven. He comes to bring that world to us. Jesus did not die for worldliness. Worldliness put him on the cross. He died for people that whoever should believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Let the song of salvation just be singing from your lips. Be joyful in the Lord. You die today, you are secure for all of eternity. As a Christian, you are as close to hell as you will ever get because when you die, you're going to be in heaven. That's why our mission statement is gospel, disciple, influence. It all begins with gospel. It's what defines us. We're a positive people, not an anti-people. We are pro-Jesus. And if that offends people, I'm sorry, but I'm going to work my tail off to tell you how great my Savior is. Are you with me? This is what it means to be church on the move. We're all in for him. We praise Jesus and worship him and fellowship, do life together in Jesus. We're nuts about him. 
We're more nuts about him than there are nuts in a Snickers bar. That was a pretty sweet statement, wasn't it? Sorry. That just came to me. That was Holy Spirit inspiration. My last encouragement is this. I want to emphasize the corporate nature of being church on the move. Our Western ears can always just personalize it and turn it into this individualistic realizing our potential thing. Of course that's good. Of course that's biblical. Before the foundations of the earth, God planned you. He has a destiny for you personally. But also there's a larger corporate destiny called the church. And I want us to grasp afresh a key cultural aspect of the kingdom. And that's the collectivistic nature of the church. We need to fight our individualistic natures. Collectivism is defined as the practice or principle of giving a group priority over each individual in it. Sacrificing for the cause, for the family of God, for the kingdom, doing things as a group because it lifts up the name of Jesus. Let's not always be thinking about our own convenience and our own time and our own schedule, our own money, but let's live larger, live bigger, live more meaningful by sacrificing for something bigger. Ask what's best for the church, not just what is best for me. That's a game changer. God wants to put courage in our hearts. You and I are his ambassadors. You and I are his servants. If we're not here, he doesn't have anyone else. He's not going to send an angel. He's sending us. And for us to go on to be a church on the move, we have to have what Joshua had, which was that courage, that emotional timber and that emotional strength. Let's stand together. Father, we come before you right now. We see the wisdom of what you spoke to Joshua. How our eyes can deceive us. How our eyes can cause us to fall back and say, oh no, I don't want to do that. But our destiny is on the other side. We need to see as Joshua and Caleb did. But to have that, we need to have courage. If you have a spirit of fear this morning, if you know that you've battled fear even your entire life, <coughs> this morning I want you to just pray to God. And say, Lord, help me to be a person of courage. Help me to set aside my fear so that I can come into what you have for me. And that we can come into all that we, you have designed for us as a church. Lord, let the spirit of fear flee this morning in Jesus' name. Perfect love casts out all fear. So liberate your people, Father God, to take the land and to enjoy the milk and honey. We bless you and thank you now in Jesus' name. Amen.